Good morning. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts 26, verses 1 through 29. For our scripture reading, Acts 26, 1 through 29. And please stand. <clears throat> So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. 
To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles." And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice." for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now, if you'll skip over to Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Romans 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Before we get going, let me give you a quick update on uh, Greg, our uh, new worship pastor, the Molina family. They sold their home early last week, and so they're making progress on that, and, and uh, they have a place picked out here in Oak Park. So we're getting, uh, things are moving forward. Not exactly sure what will be the first uh, Sunday that he shows up here yet to lead worship for us, but keep praying for the Molina family. Appreciate that. Also, if you... Uh, uh, Caroline announced the Calvary 101, um, or the Christianity 101 class, and uh, on Halloween, I think this could be a great time to come. If you haven't been to it before, I believe Pastor Johnny is going to dress up like a panda for that, so I just would encourage you, just encourage you to be there. You won't want to miss it. All right, um, we're continuing our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world, and last we left Paul, he had been taken into custody by the Roman governor, Felix. Felix didn't quite know what to do with Paul, and so he put him in prison and left him in prison for two years. So since last week, it's been two years, and Paul has been in prison. Well, Felix uh, eventually got replaced as the governor in Jerusalem by Festus. And so Festus now is the new governor in Jerusalem. And Festus wasn't sure what to do with Paul either. And so Paul appeals to stand trial in Rome before Caesar. Festus has to send him on, doesn't quite know what to even say the charges are. So Festus calls in King Agrippa, who is the local client king. So if you can think Pilate and Herod in Jesus' story, that's Festus and Agrippa in Paul's story. 
So Festus is the new Pilate, and Agrippa is the great-great-grandson of Herod. Uh, so these are the two characters that now Paul is facing. And so what's been read for us in this passage this morning is the Apostle Paul giving a speech before King Agrippa, and he's talking about the gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel. So my goal with the sermon this morning is to look at Paul's speech before King Agrippa in order to gain three insights about how you and I can share our faith with those whom God brings us to. Now, there's no one right way to share your faith in Jesus. And if we were to look at all of the speeches in the book of Acts where the gospel is presented, we would see a variety of methodologies. And Paul doesn't always use the exact same strategy. He doesn't even say, always say the exact same thing. So this is, there's no like wooden rule about how we all need to always share our faith. But Acts 26, I think, is offering us a very helpful model. So I want us to see this, see some of the main insights we can gain from this passage for how we can share our faith as well. If you're not a Christian this morning, that's fine, and we're very glad that you are here. And even though this sermon is not directed uh, particularly to you, I think you'll learn a fair bit about what it means to be a Christian, which is why I presume that you're here in church this morning. If you're not a Christian, you're trying to figure out Christianity. So do listen in, and then I'm going to have a word for you at the end. Uh, So don't go anywhere. Just stay put all the way to the end. All right, so three insights from Acts 26 about sharing our faith. Here's the first insight I think we can glean from this passage, and that's share your own story of meeting Jesus. So in verses 1 through 3, Paul begins with a respectful acknowledgement of King Agrippa. And then in verses 4 through 11, he tells of his life as a Pharisee before he met Jesus and how he had once been a persecutor of the church. And then in verses 12 through 15, he tells the dramatic story of his conversion moment, the Damascus Road moment. He talks about the terror, the blinding light, the voice from heaven, the commission that Jesus gives him to go out and to preach the good news. And telling his own story as a way of introducing the gospel is a reoccurring pattern in Paul's evangelism. We can see this throughout the book of Acts. We can see that this is what he did when he wrote his letter to the Galatians. He does this in Galatians chapter 1. He tells his own story. It's what he did when he was talking to the zealots in the temple, like we saw last week. And it's what he's doing now as he's talking to King Agrippa. And no doubt he has told this same story hundreds of times in all of his travels throughout the Roman Empire. He goes into synagogues or uh, he uh, is then kicked out of the synagogues and he's talking to the Gentiles and he's telling this story about how he met Jesus. This is actually in keeping with exactly what Jesus told him to do in 26, verse 16. Look there uh, in your text. Jesus says, but when Jesus is confronting Paul for the first time, he says, rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. And then one translation reads it like this. I think this is helpful. I've appointed you to be a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. So, Paul, when you go out and you're preaching about who I am, tell them what you yourself have seen of me and what I will show to you in the future. And that's what Paul is doing when he's telling King Agrippa about Jesus. He's telling what he himself has seen 
about Jesus. And note that Paul starts by telling how he met Jesus even before he tries to explain who Jesus is. I think that's our first insight we can gain here from this passage. Very often, the best way to share your faith is to start by simply sharing your own story of meeting Jesus, even before you try to explain who Jesus is, how he atoned for sins, how one becomes a Christian, and so forth. In many ways, this may seem like an obvious first move, but some of us skip right past our own story of meeting Jesus and begin by trying to explain our theology of Jesus. And your non-Christian friends, if they're anything like my non-Christian friends, likely aren't all that interested in your Christology or your atonement theory. Indeed, many Christians aren't interested in Christology or atonement theory. But everyone is interested in a good story. And some of you have quite dramatic stories of how Jesus has brought meaning and purpose and love to your lives. Some of you are free from the tyranny of alcohol or drugs or sex because of Jesus. Some of you have seen broken relationships restored because of Jesus. Some of you have found freedom from anxiety or depression because of Jesus. So whatever your story, start there. Speak of how Jesus has made a difference in your own life. You don't have to make it sound like you're all perfect now and everything's been taken care of and all your old struggles are entirely gone because that's not real life. Wish it were, but that's not. Just be honest about what Jesus has done and still will do in your life. By God's grace, I'm not who I was. And by God's grace, I'm not who I will be. So Jesus is saying to Paul, speak of what you've seen of me and will see of me. This is what we testify to. Now, to be fair, some of you, when you hear about Paul's story and you see Paul's example, you think, if I had a story like Paul, that would be my lead. But my story is not quite as good as Paul's story. And none of our stories are as good as Paul's story. But if you've met the living Jesus, you do have something to share, even if you can't remember when you first met him. I think that could be true for many of us, particularly if you grew up in a Christian home and you came to faith at a very early age. Some of us had very vivid memories of meeting Jesus, but for others of us, it feels like we've just sort of known him our whole lives. Maybe you feel a little bit insecure about that. You don't need to. You don't need to remember when you first met him. You may not remember when you first met your mom, but that doesn't mean you never met her. doesn't mean you don't know her. doesn't mean you don't have a relationship with her. And it can be the same way with Jesus. So if you can't remember much about your life before Jesus, I always love it when we do baptisms and we baptize the littlest kids, right? It's like this seven-year-old's like, I came to know Christ at a young age, you know, back when I was a kid. I'm like, so beautiful, Right? Right? So you, maybe you can't remember much of your life before Jesus. That's all right. Simply share who Jesus is to you right now. Who is Jesus to you right now? How does he make you feel? How does he comfort you? How does he direct your life? How does he inspire you? How does he speak to you? 
How does he pour out his love upon you? When we tell the story of Jesus found in the Bible, it's going to lack depth and meaning if we can't connect the Bible's story about Jesus to our story about Jesus. That's because Christianity isn't merely a story in a book that we proclaim. Christianity is at its flaming, molten, throbbing heart a kind and gracious and loving relationship with God through the living person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not some mere historical figure trapped on the pages of the Bible like Honest Abe is trapped on the pages of your history book. Jesus, in ways that defy words, that extend beyond our capacity to understand, comes to individual hearts and he reveals himself personally to us. Perhaps not as dramatically as he did to Paul, but he speaks to each of us just the same. And that's the whole point of Paul's gospel message. Jesus is alive and we can meet him. We don't proclaim some historical figure from the past. We proclaim the living person of Jesus Christ who can be met here in the present. But perhaps for some of you, it's been so long since you've had any real intimacy with Jesus, you don't have much of an experience of Jesus to talk about anymore. Maybe he's slowly, imperceptibly, gradually become for you less of a relationship and more of an idea, an ideal, a way of life, a religion, a moral ethic, a philosophy for living, a motivation for social justice. Somewhere along the way, you've lost touch with the actual person, Jesus Christ, who is behind and within it all. Maybe you don't really pray much anymore. Maybe you don't think much of his presence with you in your day-to-day anymore. And it's not that you've stopped believing in him intellectually. You still affirm the story in the Bible. It's not that you've quit going to church because here you are this morning. But the sense of his living, guiding, loving presence has faded so far into the background that it's hard to think of what experience now you can share with others. And I think we can find ourselves in that place for any number of reasons. But one of the reasons, the reason has been true for me, I think, is because it's emotionally safer for Jesus to be a system of thought or a religious way of life. A relationship with a system of thought or a religious tradition is fixed. It's static. It doesn't surprise you. You always know what to expect. You always know what is asked of you. And you can approach it or withdraw from it at your own will. But a relationship with a person 
That's different altogether. That can be messy. It can frankly be terrifying. A person of Jesus' power to be in relationship with him, that can be downright terrifying. My daughter told me uh, last week that her friends have been making fun of me because I keep mentioning C.S. Lewis in the service and that uh, they now one of them has made a meme of me talking, preaching about C.S. Lewis. So this, I'm about to mention C.S. Lewis again, and this is only going to you know, further uh, fuel that meme, but we've been reading uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia to our youngest daughter, and uh, one of the reoccurring things that is said of Aslan, if you've not, if you've not read uh, Chronicles of Narnia, just stop whatever you're doing, go out right now, buy the Chronicles of Narnia and read it. But the best part of, of the Chronicles of Narnia is Aslan, is the Christ figure, the lion. And uh, over and over again, you see this throughout each of the books that is said of Aslan by the characters of Narnia, that Aslan is not a tame lion. A system stays out there, and I engage with it as I feel comfortable. But the living person of Jesus, who is not a tame lion, when he comes in here, we don't know exactly what he's going to do. We're not in control anymore of a person. And I don't know what he'll do if you let him in, except to say that he'll love you. And that can be terrifying because he's not safe, but he is good. Let me encourage you not to settle for the mere idea of Jesus, mere intellectual adherence to what's his story in the Bible, or mere adherence to his morality and ethics. He wants more from you than for you to have the right ideas about him and to have correct actions about him. He wants to be in relationship with you. So press forward into the vulnerability of intimacy and seek to know Jesus again because you won't be a very effective witness for the living person of Jesus if all you can say about him are your ideas about him. If we're going to be proclaimers of the gospel with power that has God's blessing to affect change in others' lives, we have to be speaking out of our own living experience of Jesus Christ. So start there. Share your own story of meeting or experiencing Jesus. Second, you can glean from this passage, share about God's redeeming love. In verse 17, Paul tells Agrippa about some of the key benefits of the gospel, benefits that would have been especially meaningful, I think, to the apostle Paul. There's so many things that could be said about all the benefits of the gospel. You could fill up whole pages with it. But, I, but Paul focuses on four benefits here, and I think he, maybe he picks these four because they're near and dear to his heart, given his own story of meeting Jesus. He speaks about uh, God in Christ opening the eyes of the blind and giving new spiritual insight. This is both literally and metaphorically true in Paul's life. Paul was living in metaphorical blindness not seeing the world as it really was, not seeing Christ as he really was. And then Christ met him and literally blinded him, physically blinded him. 
And then in that blindness, Paul came to see that he had been living in blindness. And then Jesus literally opened his eyes and metaphorically, spiritually opened his eyes. So that Paul had a whole new way of thinking about who Jesus was and about the world and about God. And that can be true, particularly if you've come to faith in Christ more as an adult, the more dramatic story like Paul's, right? Where you, can, you could remember when you had this aha moment of encountering Christ and all of a sudden you saw the world in a whole new way. Colors you had never seen before, sounds you had never heard before. The whole world was filled with a brightness and a glory and a light because Jesus had opened your eyes and given you new spiritual sight. Paul speaks about delivering captives from the oppressive power of Satan. Remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when humanity first sinned. The first result of sin that we see in the world is Cain killing his brother Abel. We see the violence and the hatred that emerges because of sin. And this is Satan's tyranny. It is violence and it is rage and it's hatred. And this is what gripped Paul's life. He just tells it, he just told it to King Agrippa. He was going from town to town filled with fury, trying to bring persecution upon those that he hated. He was living the life of Cain. He thought he was living the righteous life, but he wasn't. He was living a life of violence. And God has come in Christ and has delivered him from the oppressive power of Satan into a life of love and liberty and harmony. Paul speaks of offering God offering the free forgiveness of sins through Christ. You know, there are certain sins that after we've committed them, we can sort of repair them through our actions. If I steal something from you, I feel bad about it, I give it back to you, and now it's been repaired. But there are other sins that you can't undo. Things that we've broken that we can't fix. I think Paul felt the weight of this. Chasing around all these Christians, we read about, in particular, the story of Stephen the martyr. The blood of Stephen on Paul's hands, how could he wash that off? He can't bring Stephen back to life. Some of the sins that we sin, we can't get free of. We can't make restitution for. There's no correcting. The horrible and fearful truth is that every sin we sin is ultimately against God. But the good, glorious truth is that because every sin is a sin against God, God has the right to forgive every sin. God could forgive Paul for what he did to Stephen, even though Stephen wasn't there anymore to offer forgiveness. The free forgiveness of God, how glorious a truth that God forgives all sin in Christ. And that God in Christ, Paul says, was granting a place among the community of faith, the very community that Paul was out persecuting, Christ welcomes him into. The church is called the body of Christ. Paul is out persecuting Christ's body, and then Christ's body welcomes Paul in. So Paul is noting a number of different aspects of redemption here, and there's more that could be said, as I mentioned. But if we had to sum up all the benefits of the gospel under a single Pauline idea, I think God loves would be an apt expression. It's what Paul says in Romans 5 when he says that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ and that God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and how God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ. Or in Ephesians 5 where Paul says that Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her. Over and over again, Paul speaks of the redeeming activity of God as God's love for us. For Paul, the love of God in Christ for the whole world was very personal. Listen to what he says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For me, Paul says. Not the vague collective us or the world, but for me. Perhaps you've heard it said that even if you had been the only person on the earth, God would have sent Jesus to die for you. And it's true. But we can hear it so much, I think, that it becomes for almost almost like a Hallmark card. We just dismiss it, particularly if you've grown up in church. I remember hearing that all the time when I was a kid. You hear it so much, it sort of just loses its punch. But, but it is true. He really does love us that personally and that individually. We are not mere afterthoughts. Nor did God set out to save the vague general mass of humanity and then whoever ends up in that he's pleased with. He set out to save you, your name. He knows you better than you even know yourself. Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has loved us in Christ since before the foundations of the world. Even before he spoke the first words, let there be, he was thinking of you personally. Listen to this short little essay that makes this point. It's called God Smiled. Our father stood on the edge of creation, his sovereign word poised on his lips, his creative spirit brooding over the formless deep. Each possible world passed before him, vying for his favor. Worlds of beauty, worlds of power, worlds of love. Pick me, they called. But none suited him. Even the best of them lacked an essential piece. He dismissed them with a wave. Something was missing. And then a world caught his eye. He saw its teeming beauty. He saw the glory of its priestly king and queen. He saw its garden temple and its river of life. He heard the rush of the spirit as it went forth into the uttermost. This was a good world. Yet still his word remained unspoken. Still his spirit brooded. And then he saw the adversary ascend and the world fall. He saw humanity dethroned and covered with shame. He heard Abel's blood call out to him from the ground. He saw the apostasy of the angels, the wrath of the giants, and the destruction caused by sin. He saw the flood, the tower, the fracturing of the nations. He heard the anguished cries of a bitter Job. This was a hard world, a pained world. But still he watched, neither embracing nor rejecting the world before him. He could make something of this world. But still there was something missing, something too important to go without. And then he saw the covenant with Abraham. He saw Israel pass through the sea. He saw the heavenly feast in the wilderness. He saw the gift of the law, the humility of David, the glory of Solomon, the mystery of the temple. And then he saw the incarnation of his son, his humble birth, his unswerving faithfulness. He saw his son's rejection, his betrayal, his death. He saw the resurrection, the empty tomb, and the veil torn in two. 
He saw the adversary fall and the kingdom advance. He saw the triumph of the church and the return of her Lord. He saw Jerusalem descend and the wedding of the Lamb. He saw humanity re-enthroned and the endless glories of the world reborn. He heard eternal praises from thankful hearts and felt the lasting joy of the children he loved. Yes, this was a very good world, a very good world indeed. Yet his word remained unspoken. His spirit continued to brood. Something still was missing. Then he saw you. He saw you and he smiled. And satisfied at last, his creative word spoke light into the darkness and his quickening spirit plunged into the deep. When God made the world, he made the world to make you because he loves you. And if our very creation was ordained in love, how much more our salvation has been ordained in personal love. And it's the love of Christ that we've encountered that compels us to share the gospel with others. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, verse 14, chapter 14. Paul says of his evangelistic ministry that it's the love of Christ that compels him to preach the gospel. Listen, we're not going to be motivated to share, to do evangelism, if we think evangelism mainly means running around, trying to hand out our treats from our bags of religious practices and Christian ethics. But a bag full of holy, happy joy grounded in the free and unmerited love of God for me, that's something worth sharing. Maybe you're not motivated to share Jesus with others because you've lost sight a bit of just how much Jesus loves you. Paul never lost sight of that. That's why he burned so white hot in his evangelism. Come back to your first love. Not the love with which you first loved God, but the love with which God first loved you. Be reminded that in love, He has opened your eyes and given you new spiritual sight. In love, he delivered you from the tyranny of Satan. In love, he has forgiven you of all of your sins. In love, he has welcomed you into the community of saints. And all at the great cost of his only beloved son. God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And it's our experience of God's love for us that compels us to share that love with others. I remember a few years ago sitting with a number of other pastors and telling them that I had never been more confident of Christianity as a beautiful, coherent system, but that I felt like I was losing sight of the person at the center of it all. And I'm happy to say that I found him again in fresh ways this summer. Jesus, the living, loving person, center of it all. And as the love of Jesus has become more real to me, the love that Jesus has for me personally, not just the idea of Jesus, my sense of having something to share with others has increased proportionally. Because we are not called to share a beautiful system or a religious way of life. A system can't love. A religion can't love. Only a person can love. That's the message we've been called to preach. That God loves us. 
God loves us in the person of Christ. So step one, share your own story of meeting Jesus, your experience of Jesus. Step two, share about God's redeeming love for you. And then three, share Jesus' call to repentance. Verse 19, Paul continues to fill out the message that he was called to preach. He tells Agrippa that not only was he called to preach a message about God's redemption of the world in Christ, he was also called to preach a message of repentance. Look at verse 20. Paul's message to both Jews and Gentiles was was that they should repent and perform deeds in keeping with repentance. Repentance, the Greek term here that's translated repentance, literally means to change one's mind. But the repentance of the gospel, repenting to Jesus, is not just an intellectual change. It's not just a change of the mind that doesn't affect the whole rest of your life. Paul is calling for an act of repentance. A change of the mind that leads to a change of life. Repentance is the doorway into the bounties of the gospel. And this call to repentance is consistent with what we see all throughout the New Testament. So what Paul is doing here with King Festus is in what we see all throughout the New Testament. The apostles repeatedly call people to repent, to change their minds about Jesus, and to order their lives accordingly. Repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. Repentance is always the call that comes along with the gospel. How comfortable are you calling people to repent? I think that can be hard for many of us, especially in our culture. Our culture, if you haven't noticed, is not big on repentance. So we'd rather sometimes just speak of God's love. That's safer. We don't like calling people to repentance because it sounds so judgy, as the kids say. But I think we feel that way only because we've forgotten that rules and love go hand in hand, as any good parent will tell you. I mean, if you have kids or you had good parents with enough hindsight, you know that rules and love go hand in hand. Why do parents make rules for their kids? It's not to oppress their kids. They make rules for their kids because they want to see their kids flourish. They want to see their kids thrive. So they know, at least think we know, what will be helpful in that, and we make rules accordingly. Rules and love go hand in hand. Rules should come from love. The world is not arbitrary. It's been made to work a certain way. It's like a piece of wood. There is a, there's a particular grain that runs through the world. And when you move with the grain of the world, you find blessing. But when you try to move across the grain of the world, to cut against the grain of the world, you get splinters. You hurt yourself, and ultimately you can hurt the world too. The problem, of course, again, as any good parent will tell you, is that very often we are like little children thinking that we know best how the grain of the world runs. We know best how the world works. And that's what sin is. Sin is ignoring what God says about the grain of the world, going our own way. And repentance is coming to terms with the truth that Jesus knows the grain of the world better than we do. Because... He's the one that made the world. 
So calling a person to quit cutting across the grain of the world and to begin living in harmony with the world, that is a message of love. And precisely because the gospel is the good news of God's love for the world, any communication of the gospel that doesn't include a call to repentance isn't really fully the gospel. But it's always important to keep in mind the proper order between the message of God's love and the message of repentance. Love is the currency that funds the cost that comes with repentance. So a number of weeks ago, I had this slide uh, in the sermon. And here you can see, we made the point that the love of God is with the, the ground that we stand upon that gives us joy. And it's the joy that we have in the love of God that empowers us to go down into the costly places of obedience and come up on the other side and experience the joy that comes from obedience and victory. And the more costly the obedience, the more joy that is needed. Well, repentance works in exactly the same way. So go to here this next slide. It's the same slide except the word costly obedience is gone. And now we have the word repentance. This is how the Christian life starts, and it's how the Christian life continues. The call to repentance at the beginning of the Christian life is funded in the same way with the currency of God's love. So in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance? It's the love of God, we could say, that leads to to repentance. Why baptism is the great, the great uh, sacramental rite of entering the church because it symbolizes this very move of going down into death, repentance down into death and then coming up on the other side full of the life and joy and glory of Christ. And I know that for some people, the call to repentance will require a deep and expensive step of faith it will cost them dearly. You know, if you came to Christ as a six-year-old, you didn't have a whole lot to repent of, right? You know, maybe stealing some toys from your brother or sister or shouting no at your mom. But you live long enough, and if you go deep enough down and cutting against the grain of the world, you can find yourself in a place where it's, there's a lot of backtracking that needs to be done. And the amount of cost that will come with some people's repentance can be very steep. And the steeper the repentance, the deeper that that valley of repentance must go, the greater the love of God has to be experienced on the front end of that to motivate or to fund that level of repentance. So when you're preaching the gospel, don't hide or sidestep the call to repentance, but be sure to start with God's love. Not just words of love, but real, true, relational, embodied love. We have to communicate to those that have not yet repented that God loves them and that he's calling them into repentance because he loves them. It's not that God's love waits for them on the other side of repentance, but it's because God loves them as they are right now before they repent that God is calling them to repent. And my hope and earnest prayer for us as a congregation is that we would increasingly become the kind of church that would be so filled with the love and joy of Jesus 
that God would be able to fund very expensive steps of repentance through us. That those far from God would walk into this place and they would experience the overwhelming love of God. That it would radiate off of us like heat. That it would come off of us like perfume. That just coming into this place, one would experience the love that God has for humanity. And in that love, the joy would be born and there would be willingness to step down into the deep, dark, scary places of repentance. And that those who experience the love of God here would find themselves willing to step into the baptismal waters of repentance and come up brand new on the other side. If we want to see God change lives through us as a church, we must collectively together tap deeply into the love of God. And by God's grace, we will tap deeply into his love. We're going to keep pressing in on that. I want to conclude with a word to my non-Christian friends that may be here this morning. I told you I had a word for you. It very well could be that some of you are standing right on the threshold of repentance. You've been coming to church off and on perhaps for a while, maybe new experience of coming to church, but you've been brought up right to the edge of repentance. and You're staring down in to that shadowed valley, Christ is calling you into the waters of baptism, and it's scary because you don't know what's down there. You can't see the bottom. You don't know where it will lead. And I don't know exactly either, but I can tell you at least this, what's down there. Death is down there. Death to your life of blindness Death to your old way of living. Death to Satan's tyranny and dominance in your life. Death to a life that is always cutting against the grain. But life is on the other side of that death. And Jesus calls you to repentance, to go down into that shadowed valley of conversion because he loves you. He loves you as you are right now. He is for you. And he longs for you to join in his joy and his happiness. And you can trust him. He will be with you as you go down into the shadowed valley of repentance. He's not a tame lion. He's not a safe lion. But he is a good lion. and He will take care of you. Yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with you as your good shepherd taking care of you. and He will bring you back out of the shadowed valley up into the other side of light. And I can testify from personal experience, and there are many who can testify here from their own personal experience, that he will take care of you the whole way. So maybe you're saying, I, I want to step into that valley of repentance. I, I want, I don't know what to do. Tell me what to do. I, Paul says in Romans 5 that if we confess, or Romans 10, that if we confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That's all there is to it. 
to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He's the maker of the world. He's the one that know how the, knows how the grain runs. Confess the lordship of Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead to atone for your sins and you will be saved. Maybe would help to pray a prayer, something like this. It's not exact words to need to be said in these way, but maybe this is a sentiment that would help you. Maybe you could pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I see that I need you in my life. I've tried to go my own way, but I've only gotten lost. I've tried to find hope in the things of this world, but I've only become hopeless. I repent of my vanities, and my vain pursuits, and I acknowledge that you and you alone are the source of all truth and joy and love. Thank you for loving me and dying on the cross as a sacrifice for my sins. Thank you for rising again as evidence of new hope. I give my life wholly to you. Come into my life by your Holy Spirit and make me who you want me to be. Just pray that prayer, some prayer like that. Jesus loves you. He loves you and he'll be with you and he will take care of you as you step into those waters of repentance. He will bring you up on the other side full of joy and light life. We're going to sing a closing song. Maybe this closing song can be your song. Maybe this is your moment to step down into the valley of repentance. So let these words be the words, sing them from your own heart. So I invite the band to come back up as we, as I close in prayer and then encourage you, all of us really, to sing this song from the heart. Father, thank you for giving us Christ. Thank you for giving us the hope of the world to be our hope. I pray that you would encourage us more deeply in how much you love us and that in the abundance of the knowledge of that love, we would share that love with others. Give us confidence, Lord, to call people to the hard path of repentance. I pray you would give us the confidence that comes from knowing that you love us and you love them. So help us to speak that word with love. And I pray for any here this morning, Lord, who stand right on the edge of repentance. Maybe they're afraid to step down into the shadowed valley because they don't know what it all will mean. Lord, help them to rest now in your love. Give them such an overwhelming confidence in your love that they will step down into that place and give their lives holy to you. We pray this in the name of your Son.